Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer and educator Derek Phillips. Derek is the drum set and ensemble instructor at both Middle Tennessee State University and Vanderbilt University here in Nashville, Tennessee. In the spring of 2014, Derek became the touring drummer for Hank Williams Jr. Derek has worked with a long list of great artists such as Vanessa Williams, Michael McDonald, Johnny Lang, Charlie Peacock, Charlie Hunter, Jimmy Hall, Delbert McClinton, and Joshua Redmond, just to name a few. To find out more about this podcast and other episodes we've done, you can go to WorkingDrummer.net. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and while you're there, leave a rating and review that really helps us grow. I also want to let you know that this Friday, May 19th, we are launching our Patreon page, which is a crowdfunding subscription website. This allows the listener or you, the listener, to participate by donating whatever you feel this podcast is worth. And with different donations, there are different rewards that would include a free t-shirt, free online lessons with one of our great guests that we've had, access to exclusive content that we will have available. So look for that this Friday, May 19th. Look for more information in the coming weeks and months. We also have a giveaway from Innovative Percussion, a great list of sticks. We've got about 18 pairs of drumsticks, a beautiful leather stick bag, uh, some bass drum beaters, some um, bundle sticks that they're giving away. I'm real excited about this and excited about Innovative Percussion participating in this giveaway. So look for that and more information about that in the coming weeks. So anyways, enough of my yakking. Let's get to Derek Phillips. Where are you playing tonight? I'm playing tonight City Winery with uh, Dara Tucker. It's her CD release party. And uh, yeah, she's great, man. Her, she has such a great... She has one of the best voices in Nashville. She's such a unique person because she grew up in a church and so she can go gospel old school like she has that blood harmony going on with she has what six siblings and they, their dad was a you know music pastor and so they grew up singing mm-hmm. in church and it's mm-hmm. funny she tells the story from the stage like her dad would trot them out like the Vaughn Traps and the like, stair step of seven <laughs> of them and they'd all sing in front of the church beautiful harmony and yeah so but and it's funny because since she grew up in a church that there wasn't secular music allowed in their house. So the only thing that they could listen to that wasn't straight up gospel was like show tunes. So like they so she grew up on old school gospel and musicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like showboat, sound of music, mm-hmm. singing in the rain. Yeah. And um but man, she can she can go anywhere. She can sing anything. Like tomorrow we're doing I'm playing a George Michael tribute and she's singing a couple songs on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's insane. She's a great writer, like really creative. It's, it's definitely, she's one of those, I guess she's kind of lumped in the jazz area, but she's kind of comes from the Cassandra Wilson, Liz Wright, Gregory Porter school, where it's not just like straight up swinging. Mm-hmm. It could, yeah. but it's not necessarily about that. And it's about just these beautiful creative, like telling a story, like 
definitely that Nash kind of old school Nashville. Like she loves old country stuff, so it's like right. that old school storytelling vibe. Mm-hmm. And a whole variety of grooves. Like sometimes I'm playing with my hands. Sometimes I'm just playing a train beat. Sometimes I'm playing a hip hop groove. So it's really cool. Really cool. Wow. Fun stuff. So that sounds cool. And how often are you kind of juggling the? And is this kind of a, more of a one off type of thing? This is kind of a one off thing. She's mm-hmm. kind of I, I kind of have a handful of artists where um, they're like I'm such fans of them that anytime I can I play with them I can. But there's often conflicts. But anytime I get a chance, like we did a little weekend run last month but she's done a bunch of other dates i couldn't do so mm-hmm. about five or six times a year i get to play with her yeah and, so and, and you were telling me before that uh you're finishing up with finals mm-hmm. two schools yep i just gave my uh jury exams at vanderbilt on thursday and uh, then i gotta do that again at middle tennessee uh yeah. next week tuesday tuesday uh tuesday and wednesday yep during the school year, what was your week or weeks well, like? The cool thing about being adjunct is that I only teach at one day a week per school. So, like, MTSU, oh. Mondays are my MTSU days. Tuesdays are my Vanderbilt days. And I just I give private lessons pretty much exclusively at both schools, except at Middle Tennessee, I work with one of the small groups. Okay. And, um, yeah, so it's great because it leaves open the rest of the week for sessions, in-town gigs, out-of-town gigs. Nice. Mowing the lawn, washing yeah. dishes, doing the laundry, <laughs> all that stuff. Going on field trips with my kids, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Just trying to catch up with um, guy, uh, with when you started uh, doing uh, those. So 2010 Yeah, 2010. 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a great drummer in town named Tommy G. Phenomenal drummer. Um, he got a full-time gig at, at UMass. And then uh, I was friends with some people in the faculty of both schools, so. Um, Don Alico, saxophonist uh, professor at MTSU, asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. And mm-hmm. I, I already given a master class there, so I had some connection. Okay. And I live in Murfreesboro, so that helped. And then a few days later, the dean of music at Blair at Vanderbilt called me and asked me if I wanted to interview for that position. So it's kind of funny. I basically became Tommy G once he left. I just kind of <laughs> slid into his spot yeah. and started teaching there. Yeah, and it's been great. And it's um, it's fun. I love teaching. It's, it's fun. I used to be kind of apprehensive about it just because, like, you know, I'm a player. I want to be a player. And it's mm-hmm, like, but right. I'm an educator, too. And I, I've learned to embrace the beauty of teaching. And that's uh, not only is it great as a you know, supplementary income, yeah. but it's something, again, I'm passionate about education. I, I love teaching. I love seeing the light bulb go on with students. Uh, yeah. And um, and also, it feeds me. Like, as I'm <clears throat> working on whatever books they're working out of, it kind of reinforces things for me because, you know, I created a four-year curriculum and, it, and last year I actually expanded um, the, my syllabus. So I have like a one that's strictly jazz studies major. So it's a little more advanced, probably the most advanced of the curriculums. Mm-hmm. Then I have one that's geared towards um, recording industry majors, music industry major, music industry majors, music education majors. That's not quite as intense, but still kind of covers the full spectrum. And I have kind of a beginner syllabus as well where like if you never touched a drum or read a look of music this is the track you go on interesting so yeah and it's fun it's it's great it's uh i give them two textbooks a semester and they have to transcribe three songs and and i try to cover basically i tell my students i said if you stick with this if you stick with me for four years you should be able to audition or get any gig that you want now it's up to you what what you put in, but just yeah. in terms of the material that I give them, yeah, because I cover a wide range. I mean, we're covering obviously four way independence, New Orleans second line drumming, wow, funk linear drumming, R and B grooves, 
you know, Afro-Cuban rhythms, more more advanced Afro-Cuban rhythms, bop drumming, mm-hmm. soloing, improvising, rudiments. I mean, I, I try to, you know, just give it all up. Even um, song reading songwriter charts, like for the industry guys, I have, I use that Jim Riley song, was a song charting made easy book. So they're learning how to read number charts. Yeah, right. For a semester and working. And then I supplement that with like, I might bring in a demo that I had to learn with the artists I play with and say, okay, here's a demo. Next week, play, give me two different styles. Give me like a hard rock style and kind of Americana style. Write your own chart and then play it next week. So that's kind of an example of what I do. So Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it's great. I, I, it's it's a lot of fun for them. Again, it's giving back to me because it reinforces all that stuff. Like as I'm working on my New Orleans stuff, my I feel my groove getting fatter. I'm working on the Garibaldi stuff. I feel like I'm, you know, it's getting deeper and deeper into my hands and into my legs. Right, right, so, right. So I think that's been a, a motivation for me to think about starting to teach again. Mm-hmm. Was everyone I talk to says it. Even when you're teaching the basic, it helps the basics. It helps reinforce those Absolutely, things. Man. Absolutely, it, it makes you accountable to yourself so that True. you can be accountable to the student, mm-hmm. especially for those of us who are always conscious about where we're at and trying to make sure that we're being responsible mm-hmm. to the next generation. Mm-hmm. No question. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, you're covering core principles with every student, but obviously depends on if they're jazz studies, mm-hmm. they're focusing on things. Right. Um, and, and you said you redesigned or added to the syllabus recently. I, um, I did. I, I I brought in a few more books. Like I brought in some great books, man. Uh, two of those Zorro books, the the Commandments of R and B Drumming and the Commandments of Early R and B Drumming. I wish he changed the titles because they're too close. <laughs> but both of those are incredible books. And yeah, okay, and it That's was good to know. great for me because like the early R and B Drumming book is awesome because it's essentially it bridges the gap from jazz to rock and roll. So we so we're learning grooves that you know Earl Palmer played and and, yeah. and playing jump swing and shuffles and yeah. you know, Texas shuffle blues shuffle and man mm-hmm. those grooves like half of those Earl Palmer grooves like you play with Little Richard and Fast Domino they're just train beats they're just a little bit like what was it um I'm walking with Fast Domino man that's just a messed up train beat I'm like man this is so funky. It is, and it's it still got, got a swing. Yeah, it still yeah, exactly. has a swing. Very it still hard. has a swing, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I brought a couple of those books in. There's another book. Um, <clears throat> the, the, what I was going to ask you was mm-hmm. uh, just if if anything in your approach has changed as technology has changed, kind of the demands mm-hmm. of the drummer has changed in the last even five years, but the way we consume information and the, the way that young people consume yeah. information changes. So I know that's been a challenge for teachers from time to time when a student comes in and say, well, I learned this on YouTube or I learned this. You know, they're, they're doing it in a different way than mm-hmm. you, maybe you and I did when we were growing right. up. Have you had to make any ad- Adaptions to that, or Man, I embrace all of that. I I teach yeah. heavily off of YouTube, actually. Okay, <laughs> I do. I like yeah. a lot of the references. I, I'll if we're listening to somebody or we're playing through an excerpt, I say, well, let's check out what Herlin Riley did, or what Steve Jordan did, or Steve Gag did, and we'll go to the videos and watch them play. Like, okay, I'm teaching you Mozambique. Let's check out Steve Gag's Mozambique, and I will pull up late in the evening and yeah. we'll watch him do it, whether it's in the clinic or in the studio. So I fully embrace YouTube, and, and and I tell a lot of my students like you have no excuse to get information because it's all available to you. Yeah, so right. so might as well take full advantage of it, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and while you can. So how to utilize that information and how to? I've just I've talked to some teachers that say that there's times they've had to undo 
some some stuff like undo the bad habits and and here's an oh, yeah. example i i, I uh, recently like so many people started doing some tracking at home yeah and i had some people uh, actually from germany and they said hey we want this train beat on this song it's an americana thing but you live in nashville and figure you can do a train beat right and here's a youtube clip of somebody playing a train beat <laughs> kind of what we want right <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> I was like, I will not play it like that. I know what you mean, but that is not a good example at all. You know, well, they can't help it. I mean, Grant, they live in Germany. They didn't grow up with it. Well, you know, I don't blame them. But but here, here was somebody on YouTube that was uh, coming from a very uh, like like there was an authority about the approach Mm. and saying. Okay, I'm going to show you how to do this, and here's how you do that. And it, they, they weren't really taking it seriously. Yeah. Um, the snare was tuned like it was they were going to play for Pantera or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just kind of it was just they just didn't take it seriously. Which right, I get, right. I get it's country music, whatever. But it's like it's still got to swing. It's Absolutely. still got to be great. Still got to be Absolutely, you, know? you got to be committed to it. And that's funny. I, like I mentioned earlier, that I got to hang out with Greg Morrow last week. Yeah. And that was one of the things he said. He's he's like, man, because because obviously I got a big man crush on him, and I just <laughs> and like he, it was funny because he he talked about other people. Like I really just want to hang out because he's a sweetheart of a dude. Yeah, and I just want to. And I've always been a fan of of mentors and people have been there, and I know people can kind of approach him as as well as a whole host of phenomenal musicians kind of a well if i connect with this guy it'll take me to the next level or Mm -hmm. he has all the secrets and then if i just follow the secrets then i get the gig with taylor swift or Mm -hmm. or or i get to play on tim mcgraw's record Mm -hmm. and so but he said his approach i mean he moved here when he was 38 years old i mean Mm -hmm. so his approach was like try not to screw up the gig try not to lose a gig like have enough respect for the artist Mm -hmm. and the music and yourself as a musician to not to do the job and, and just play with he play with conviction and commitment. I <clears throat> I think that's that's key. I think that's key. And, and, and it's unfortunate if some people approach it like they have a certain mastery and like oh I can do this because it's easy. But it's like there's so many easy grooves that are if you don't commit, if you don't have conviction and put your heart into it, it's yeah. not going to sound yeah. right. It's not going to yeah. you're not do, you're really not doing your job if yeah. if, that, if that's how and. I've had to check myself a few times when I haven't been invested in this for myself. Like, look, it's a gift to do what I do. I can't yes. take it lightly. Yes. Again, the respect of others. Respect of, people are paying money to see me hit metal and wood. Like, I, the very least I could do is care. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Right, right, right. I had a chance to see Greg uh, a couple months ago uh, with his group Grooveyard at 3rd oh, yeah. Lindsley. And it was like man, they hadn't played in seven years. Right. And, man, he just he just laid it down. Yes, and there was so much going on on stage and so much great musicianship that you could mm-hmm. enjoy collectively. It wasn't a showcase for him, but I was right. there because I've got the man crush too. <laughs> but he was playing such an amazing supportive role right. in that. And uh, and, and it, that kind of reinforces when we geek out and we're just all about drummers, 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 that mm-hmm. here's somebody that 
lays it down and plays such a strong supporting role that will work for the rest of his life. Exactly. And for those interested in the Greg Morrow story, go to workingdrummer.net and find his episode. He he goes into that. That's awesome. Growing into Memphis, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 the scene, and then uh, being convinced to to come to Nashville and Mm -hmm. and that whole thing. Such a humble, what a a sweetheart. Such a good dude, warm dude. He had his time, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And to kind of go back to the question you're talking about in terms of like the advancement of technology, how it can be a disadvantage. I think the downside of the technology is that we can, people go geek out and they check out stuff and then they, but they don't really do their research. Like they might stop at a certain level. Like I've had tons of students that love drummers that I love that are phenomenal, whether it's Chris Dave, Mm -hmm. Nate Smith, I don't know, Jojo Meyer, um, Mm -hmm. Benny Greb, phenomenal musician, but the problem is that those guys all did their homework. Like, I've heard Chris Dave play a straight-ahead gig. I've heard him play a straight-up R&B gig. And so when he does his crazy hip-hop stuff or freaky stuff, you know, it's because it comes from a place of, of genuineness. And he did his research. He knows who John Bonham is. He knows who Philly Joe Jones is. And he right. studied their stuff. Right. And so if you just stop there, <clears throat> I think that's that's what leads to a lot of deficiency in a lot of players playing. So that's the downside is that people get stuck they'll watch 20 chris dave tunes but uh, 20 chris dave videos yeah but they won't check out you know charlie persip or art blakey or right will Ca- will calhoun or yeah. even Questlove. even i mean you know that they just there's steps along the way exactly. you can't go from one to ten exactly. there's there's eight more in there exactly. it's like uh you know i'm trying to remember who i was really into at the time and he mentioned and i was really into mitch mitchell as well who was who was a mm. fan of this guy's mm-hmm. and then my teacher was like well you know then you need to dig into some elvin jones exactly Precisely. Like, what? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then who was Elvin listening? To? And then you know, going going down the line, right. and why those things were happening. Uh, I got to check those books out that you were mentioning about oh. Zorro because making yeah. that connection from mm-hmm. swing and jazz right. to pop music mm-hmm. and that 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 wonderful lineage exactly that when you make it make the connection, then you can play. You can play a train groove on a new track with a new artist, but if you have that history, then you know how to make it swing mm-hmm. hard and not just... I think that was my complaint about that YouTube video. It's like, it you don't swinging. care. No, you don't. You're not caring. <laughs> I hate it when it's not swinging. I hate it. It bugs me, man. Have you taught... Did you teach before when you uh, before you started this? Or what, <laughs> yeah. what What capacity? I did. I did. I've done private lessons all along pretty much my whole life, but I think my, my first experience teaching was actually teaching in drum corps. Um, when I was in the Blue Devil Open Class Corps, actually taught the the feeder corps that I started in. Mm-hmm. So I was probably 18, 19 years old. Okay. And um, and also, another, speaking of Blue Devils, another cool thing was um, my high school instructor was Scott Johnson, who's the caption head for the Blue Devils. At the time, he was teaching at Vanguard, but he lived by the high school that I went to, and he was our director. And so... Um, he actually hired me after I graduated to be one of his assistants. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was funny because I marched Blue Devils uh, pretty much all through my high school career. And then I could have marched until I aged out. But once I got into college, I decided to commit to drum set. And I remember standing on the sidelines with him during one of the rehearsals. And he said, man, I got an open snare spot if you want to come back. I said, no, I'm good. I just want to sit down while I'm playing. So And then, yeah. and then lo and behold, they won three championships. I could have had three championships by the time I turned 21. But anyway, it's, it's a sacrifice. Yeah. But um, So that was kind of my first experience teaching and kind of working under him, 
um, really helped. And then that led to doing kind of private lessons infrequently throughout my early adult years. And then when I when I moved from California to New Jersey, I, <clears throat> trying to get a gig, it was really tricky. But um, this marching band um, position opened up at a high school about 20 minutes from where I live. So I actually taught the marching band and the jazz band for three years at a high school in New Jersey. Okay. And um, that was a lot of fun. It, it was very challenging because the instrumentation didn't always work out. Like the marching band, we had, what, like 30 people in the marching band. So I had to be, including the color guards, I had to be real creative with it. Yeah. But um, but by the end of the my tenure, I, I was arranging the music. I was writing the drill design. Wow. Like I know one year we did... <clears throat> The first year, I just threw together a bunch of like, it was like '60s dance parties, so we or '70s dance parties. So I just, we did like a Jackson Five song and yeah. some Motown stuff. And then the next year, we did an all uh, Carlos Santana show. Oh, cool! So then I and so then I had to slowly. It's hard to find marching band. Surprisingly enough, marching band material that does a lot of um, Carlos Santana. So there's a couple of tunes I had to arrange myself, but half of it like was bought, and half was arranged. Not too many guitar players in the marching band. Yeah, but but you know I had I had a guitar player in my marching band, I had a guitar player and oh, a bass really? player in my marching band. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, it was like yeah, like I said, the instrumentation was so funky. Like you know, I'd have five flutes and then one trombone, and then <sighs> it was so messed up. So I just had to make do. And then the final year, we actually took. Rent the Broadway musical, and mm-hmm. all I had was the piano vocal score, and I wrote it for my, the instrumentation of my marching band. Wow. Literally transcribed it for my marching band, and as well as doing the drill design. And my, it's, it's, it's funny; my wife almost divorced me after that. Oh so I was God. like, "That's the last time I do that." <laughs> well, well, what was your experience? What was your education that that gave you the tools to do things like arranging? Well, I, I studied, uh, I went to William Patterson University and got a degree in jazz studies performance. And so one of the requirements was uh, taking jazz theory, yeah. uh, jazz training, and jazz arranging. So I, I actually had to write out um, a couple years of different um, jazz arrangements for a big band. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gave me the bug. So just a learning, like kind of learning four-part harmonies between instruments. And so that kind of gave me the bug. I just got fascinated with how these voices could blend together like creating a like just creating a chord with a trombone section right that just fascinated me yeah and 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 kind of watching harmony move and shift and trying to find <clears throat> harmony that works without making like making severe jumps like having a trombone player you know jump a ninth or something mm-hmm. like that but making a smooth um cohesive movement between the sections and so that that's kind of how it got started and okay. i and and with that degree, they always they made the drummers minor in piano, so I had to take piano lessons every semester while I was there. Yeah, so, yeah. which got me even deeper into harmony. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of that was the impetus of my mm-hmm. work. And obviously, working with working with the marching bands and drum corps in California, <clears throat> kind of buddying up with the with the brass arrangers and, yeah. and as well as the the head, caption heads and seeing how they mm-hmm. constructed features and and, mm-hmm. and kind of took whatever songs they were doing and recreating, whether it's a James Taylor tune or, you know, Stan Kenton, big band arrangement, how they kind of re reappropriated that for the instrumentation that they had. So right, that's, right. So that's kind of, so following that and kind of yeah. paying close attention to that, that helped me to prepare me. Okay. I don't know if I was, it did it well, but at least it prepared me Sure, thinking I had the, the ability to do it. So. Sure. I, I always, I always hit a wall, like on the transposition end of things, I would write some sort of 
arrangement and mm-hmm. then it's like well wait a minute this is a b-flat instrument and, exactly. and i was like this do, why doesn't this sound right right and, well i because i was a music business major so mm-hmm. my experience i wish i had more of that mm-hmm. um but it it gives you a chance to dig deeper into other instruments and in which right. i imagine just complements your listening skills and everything like that that you're using every day now mm-hmm. you know and, and passing that so you're you're originally from uh, uh california right yep. you're Born. oakland uh, you well in? i was born in san francisco and then we okay. moved to the other side of the bay i basically grew up in the southern tip of the bay area which was halfway between san jose and oakland and um actually i the bridge the bridge at the bottom base of the bay of the bay basically if i lived on the east side of it if i took that west i would end up in palo alto so stanford was like 10 minutes away from my house nice so yeah um as far as uh, growing up there you had some some great teachers um but is there uh, before i get into that i wanted to ask you kind of while we're on your uh, talking about your teaching right now is there anything and, and some of your teachers like like john riley mm, and then you had dude. experience with, with Tony. <laughs> well i have got some of his books man yeah. it, that he keeps me fresh with not really playing much jazz these days but i still go back into the john riley books Absolutely. along with listening and just enjoying jazz mm-hmm. in general um he, he's been instrumental in my personal education of yeah, that. I, I just love his approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Tony Williams, I want to ask you about that. But you have uh, <laughs> Horace Arnold mm-hmm. and then uh, Yaron Israel? Yaron Israel, yep. Okay. Um, is there anything that you took away from these teachers that you use today? Like maybe you're working with students and you're like, yeah, I remember that. I'm, I'm still using this that <laughs> I picked up from, you know, like Horace or somebody like yeah. that. Well, <clears throat> Definitely. I mean, I think all of them, with the exception of one, are probably nameless, but <laughs> they all kind of met me where I was. Particularly, John, it's fascinating. What John is fascinating because even though, like, I teach out of three of his books myself, and he's a, just you could tell he's a high functioning intellectual by the way he plays hmm. and writes and stuff. But it's funny when he taught with me, he would just it was so random. Like he would come in. Well, let's say, hey, man, what are you doing today? Or what do you want to learn today? Or what do you what are you playing in your combo? Or, let's check out tunes or mm-hmm. or like because you sound organized because most teachers, especially just private teachers, not working on a university, working in a university. Yeah, they're, they're like, well, kind of go student by student. You just don't really know. I have a couple core books that I use and I start with. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you have a curriculum. I do have a curriculum for your curriculum. And, and I do that mainly because I have to for me. I had I had to have some have you know having a wife and five kids and my crazy schedule. Mm-hmm. I mean week to week I'm I'm all over the map. So it's, yeah. I needed some kind of organization, right? <laughs> but John's of, approach wasn't that. No, not at least not with me, which is fascinating. I thought he would teach out those books, but it was like, hey man, I I transcribed this Roy Haynes tune. Check this out. And we'd sit listen to it and laugh, and then pick out parts and play them together, and then. Or one time he's like, let me just hear you play, and and, and I would play. And he, actually, the coolest thing he did for me was many cool things, but one thing that uh, just speaks volumes is that he noticed I was sitting too close to the kit. Hmm. He's like, he's just checking me. I was like, man, hey, back up about six inches. And then I slipped my throne back and I was like, whoa, I could see the drum set now. Imagine that. Cause, hmm. and, it, and, it's, and it's amazing. I was from literally and figuratively how much of an impact that had because backing up now I can see every instrument. So now my body could get to everything because it was a struggle just to get the stuff because I was inside the drum set instead of being back and having a, a better view and a scope of the of the instrument, mm-hmm. and it just opened up my playing so much more. It yeah. just made it so much easier to get around the drums. It was easier to incorporate 
different voice, kind of hear the voice. I was almost like if you're at a piano and you're just your head is buried where middle C is and you can only see about an octave, mm-hmm. but like stepping back, you can see all 88 keys. That was kind of the revelation that I had. Right. Right. When, when he had me do that. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating that he didn't have, for lack of a better phrase, a kind of an organized approach mm-hmm. to drum mm-hmm. set. I mean, he's been teaching so hard. That's probably, he thought, well, I've been doing it so long, man. I just want to have fun while I'm teaching. So long. Yeah, right, but right. the cool thing is that I take away with that is like, he was meeting me where I was. And that's yeah. what I do with my students. Even though I have a set curriculum, like, you know, guy a, um, a student comes in and he or she regardless of their ability from day one they already their lesson plans already mapped out they know what they're going to do in week seven what they're going to do for the final exam it's given to them day one and so again that's for me <laughs> really, right, right right really but also for them just so they know and gives them a sense of you know accountability like you already know what you have to do the whole semester mm-hmm. so if you come in unprepared one week it's like bro you had this a month ago come on so but um, but I, again, I still always want to, even though they have a set curriculum, I do modifications depending on playing level sure. ability. Some exceptions, there's a death in the family, what have you. They can get to the drums, so I try to be understanding. But again, yeah, if yeah, if I gotta make, if I have to make it more advanced for some mm-hmm. drums, then I mm-hmm. do that and, mm-hmm. or scale it back. So again, so I I do tailor it for. No, it for the individual as mm-hmm. best I can, even though it's already kind of set in motion. So. Sure, sure. Your it sounds like your parents recognized your interest <laughs> in music. Yes, and stuff. They did. did you was the family musical or was there a lot of music going on already? Oh my gosh, man! My house, I had such a cool house growing up. Well, my my mom actually, my mom, she wanted to be in the San Francisco Symphony. You know, she was born in Texas, but she grew up in the Bay Area, and um, so she played clarinet. She did choir. Okay. middle school and high school and she was actually the first bassoonist in the san francisco unified school district back in the late 50s wow. and so once she once her that's kind of her teacher said i think you should try bassoon and so that kind of gave her a spark like maybe i can do this professionally and then my dad was a drummer grew, he grew up in arkansas so he did marching band jazz bands mm-hmm. played country gigs mm-hmm. and uh, but he never learned to read music <clears throat> so uh and he so he moved to San Francisco, kind of get away from the country, <laughs> just because he yeah. I mean, yeah. Whew, we kind of alluded to it in that last podcast, but okay. he had a rough, rough upbringing. But oh yeah, so he joined our Air Force just to get out of the South. Okay, and uh, and live in the West Coast. He got stationed in the West Coast and decided to stay there. And then sure. he met my my mom, and uh, seven months later they got married. But they were both yeah, avid avid musicians. That was definitely the connector was music. Okay. And um, but once they got married, so I'd have a kids. They kind of drummers and bassoonists. They're just like in yeah, exactly. Yeah, I yeah, mean, everybody so. says that they're good. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> oh, it's just yeah. So it was cool. So even though they stopped playing, um, makes me mad because my older brother said, "Yeah, my he used to hear dad play the drums." I was like, "Man, I only heard him play drums like two times." And and like he had a kit and that he sold. I was like, ah. I never even wow. got to see it. So, wow, wow. but um, but their love for music never stopped. And yeah, music was incessantly played in our homes. And the cool thing was that there that transmitted to um, me and my two older brothers. So, you know, everybody listened to music, you know, excessively. I mean, if my mom had hold of the radio, it was generally Motown, R and B, pop stuff. She was a hardcore Prince fan. Yeah. She had every record. Wow. Luther Vandross, Anita Baker, and then obviously all the pop and soul stuff. And The then, female Luther and... Um, uh, no, no. <laughs> um, I'm th- thinking of somebody else. Oh, uh, Anita Baker? Yeah, Anita Baker. She's man. Kinda, yeah, know. she's almost like... Uh, uh, female, female Michael McDonald. Yeah, Michael McDonald. There you go. Yeah. Even better. 
<laughs> Michael Bedard, exactly. What and did I, she say? What did she say? Exactly. I didn't care. I was in love with her. She's one of my first crushes. I didn't even care. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. So, and then sometimes she would play classical music. And then my dad was big into jazz and blues, and he was a big James Brown head. Love. That's, it's funny how certain things pop out and, and and I say oh yeah that's why I love that music like my pr- big Prince fan because my mom and yeah. and a big Clyde Subberfield fan because of my dad playing James Brown so much yeah. and and uh, and then my older brother grew up in the 70s I mean I heard he played Led Zeppelin Parliament Earth, Wind and & Fire Elton John mm-hmm. and then my brother who's five years older than me grew up primarily in the 80s he, I heard everything from like Depeche Mode Suicidal Tendencies Black Flag wow. LL Cool J Public Enemy so it's like I, I couldn't get away from it oh so I was just gosh. inundated with a, a wide swath of music yeah, everything. yeah. I was so yeah I just loved it I just gobbled it up I, I just I wore out every record every cassette tape I mean I was just I was a junkie I was literally a junkie mm-hmm. literally addicted to music Did you see yourself getting into drum corps? Was that a fascination or an interest of yours before you started with the Blue Devils? Or did that... Not really, because... Well, I have to credit one of my uh, drum instructors from high school. I'm um, getting Ivan Arivas. He was so cool. See, I, I love... Again, this is how, how... It just resonates with me how he does it. Because here's a guy who was writing drum parts, was writing cadences, what have you. And he actually pulled me up to the high school band in eighth grade. He wanted me as a seventh grader, but I was afraid to go. So as an eighth grade, I actually started, I joined the high school band. And it was so cool because <clears throat> I was playing, I mean, I was so fascinated because I'm playing with these older musicians, playing all these drum beats. And then <clears throat> he would have us over to his house and he had this like really cool stereo rig where he would make mixtapes. <laughs> Wow, and so we would go to his house, and he would just make these mixtapes with just all kinds of different music, and mm-hmm. and uh, man, I loved it. So I actually got his house, and I like if I had a girlfriend, I asked, "Hey, Ivan, can I make a mixtape for my girlfriend?" So I put all these <laughs> these slow jams on there <laughs> at his house, and I yeah. loved it. And and no, he would do like one year he had us do a winter program at our concert where we we took Phantom of the Opera and just translate again. That's, that's amazing. I'm here connecting the dots. That's why another reason why I went. It made sense to me to do what I did as a marching band director because he took that Phantom Riappa piano vocal book and then mm-hmm. wrote it for the percussion section, and we did it for our winter concert. And um, yeah, so he's the one that told me about it. It was Blue Devils. He's like, man, you should check out this group. And I was like, Blue Devils, what's that? Mm-hmm. And I remember we had we had a marching band competition, and they had a, actually had um, some people from Blue Devils, and they're showing videos um, kind of on the side of the football field as as you leave the football field. And this was like 1988. Yeah, it was like 89. Sorry, and they were showing the 1988 show, mm-hmm. and I walked by it and I was I was geeked. I was like, "What is going on?" Like, just watching these people make these formations and these weird looking polyester uniforms. <laughs> but the sounds are coming out were amazing. I was like, yeah. "What is that?" And he's like, "That's Blue Devils." I've been telling you about that. I was yeah. like, "Okay, I, so I'm, I'm ready to go." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. as a freshman, that's that was my first year trying out for the Blue Devils, and it was funny because. I didn't know how it all worked. Like as amazing as I thought it was, I thought, "Oh yeah, I can play," because <laughs> everyone's been telling me, "Yeah, you're really good, Derek." You know, now here I'm an eighth grader in high school band. I'm yeah. thinking, "Yeah, I could do it." And sure. and when I auditioned, I didn't make the the open class core. I made the B core. I was like, "Man, that's messed up." And then I didn't, and then realized that, oh, 
I have to be better than I am to get to that point. Oh, right, I can't right. just be the best of where I am. Sure. You know, these are the best people from all over the country, if not the world, that are trying to that are mm-hmm. you know, auditioning for this and making mm-hmm. it. So right. <clears throat> it was a bit of a humbling experience, but it just reminded me, okay, there's at least I appreciate the fact that my circle is widening and not because I always wanted to be I'd rather be the worst of the best than the best of the worst. And I, and I always find myself like kind of mm, peeking out because, point. you know, I was, I mean, not no offense to the people, it's just I had different motivation. And so if I was in that music program I was in, I was probably the most motivated one out of everyone. Everyone's doing it for fun. Nothing wrong with that, but right. I wanted to do more. And so I would find myself reaching kind of the ceiling of yes. whatever yeah. level I was or, or organization I was. And then thankfully there was other ways I can get into something else to keep that motivation going. So I didn't burn out. So, but, but it sounds like you were surrounded by people that recognized that yeah. in you mm-hmm. and said, Hey, we got to get Derek. We got to give him more information, more stuff to do. Right. So you had grown up some people around you that were like pushing you. you towards that. Absolutely. I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it, I love that though, to, to be, the, it's better to be the worst of the best than the best of the worst because it, when you surround yourself with people that are better than you, no matter what you're doing, even if it's non-music, you grow. Right. Absolutely. You got to keep up with, with what's going on and you just become better and stronger and everything. Yeah. When you're, that's, man. So and that's the beautiful thing about living in a music town. Right. Wherever you live. Precisely. You know, uh, it really helps you just, it pushes you constantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you did that, what, for three years, four years? Four years. years. Four yeah, years? Three years with the with the B core and then one year with the open class core. Okay. And that was snare drum? Snare drum all four years, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk to people that teach and are heavily into drum corps, and mm-hmm. sometimes that's all they do, and there's right. times that, that they are drum set players as well, and mm-hmm. a lot of our listeners are drum set players, and right. that's kind of been that's my focus, but uh, the there's always been a little bit of a disconnect uh, from, there's not always a clear connection, I guess I should right, say, right. from drum corps to drum set. Right. So, um, let me see. I'm so used to having my stuff down here. Um, Okay, so any advice for young players that were heavily into drum corps that want to get into drum set playing or Mm. want to apply this to drum set playing in a musical and tasteful way? Mm, That's a good point. And did you have to go through any of that? Absolutely, man. In college, it really hit me because... When I got into college, I had all these chops, but I couldn't groove. I couldn't swing. It, it was so frustrating. So I made a, a conscious effort to kind of take all my chops, if you will, or <clears throat> my hand skill and kind of put it aside to focus on the things that I wanted in order to get a, a real groove and make things swing. So I, I spent time just playing, um, just like working through syncopation book and just working that and getting my four-way coordination better and just comping Mm-hmm. going on and then playing at all different levels like playing extremely quiet as possible oh wow yeah that really helped just expanding my dynamic range and it's amazing how it feeds into your control um, as a player like I've, I found myself like almost like discovering different muscles or different parts of my hands that I didn't mm-hmm. really use yeah because like in drum course it's pretty much all wrists it's probably, I mean so it, it kind of helped me develop my fingers how to kind of use different percentages of my wrist to finger to arm ratio and, uh, and really just work on my sound too, because playing quiet, you still have to have quality of sound. Like I tell my students all the time, like <clears throat> if you're listening to radio, if it's Metallica or 
Limp Biscuit, <laughs> or, yeah. and you have it at ten, yeah, it's going to be loud. But if you turn it down to two, it's quieter. But that intensity is still there. Yeah. And so that's trying to capture that as a player, just making sure if you get quieter that the quality of sound isn't weakened. It doesn't sound weak or right or or sag or even get slower. Just it still has that pop. Still has that intensity. I mean, some of the baddest drummers play so quiet. James Gadson. So mm-hmm. quite Al Jackson. They don't play that loud, but it's so good and it's so there's intent mm-hmm. in their playing and just meaning and conviction. Mm-hmm. It's like so that's so that's what I was trying to do. And I would just take every I would go in one day and I just work swing stuff and just like play as quiet as possible and play as loud as possible and just work my dynamic range. Next day, okay, three two room clave. Just play my three two room clave with mm-hmm. song go kick drum and yeah. <clears throat> whatever it was. Okay, hip hop beats, playing delay stuff, whatever it was, and just work the volumes and just have that control. And that's what really kind of opened things up for me. I was like, oh, I still have chops. I'm just using them different ways. It's not right. about playing a, a fear, you know, a, a barrage of notes. It's yeah. about really, you know, the intent, the meaning, creating, right. drawing the sound from the drums, not just bashing it into the drums, but, right. you know. So that, 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 that was kind of a revelation in college, like really doing that. And then slowly kind of piecing back and how to use those rudiments. Not because I didn't want to disqualify my years in drum corps marching band. I wanted, I don't want that to be a waste. So, <clears throat> kind of dipping in the bag slowly and pulling them out. Okay, how can I use the paradiddle? Okay, oh, I can split up over the drums. I can, I can mm-hmm. take the right, left, right, right. Okay, I'm gonna put make the kick the right hand. So now it's mm-hmm. kick, kick, snare, kick, kick. Okay, how does that feel? Or both mm-hmm. double stop both hands. Like maybe I play the right so it's double stop foot double stop double stop like just taking those things and moving it around the drums and trying to find musical ways to to express express that and and to not completely just dismiss mm-hmm. my time I'd spend doing all that stuff so. right so much we talk about pocket and feel mm-hmm. and all those types of things mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's interesting that that dynamics is so much a big part of that well cuz all those things pocket and feel fall under the umbrella of musicality right and as drummers, we're constantly trying to define our define our musicality to everyone else. Like, no, I am a drummer, but I can be as much of a musician as anyone else. Mm-hmm. And we're constantly doing that, right? And so it's like I have pocket, I have feel, I have this and that. Uh, but but dynamics maybe doesn't get discussed enough, True. and the, the the ability to play a very soft with intensity. Yes, and that the, I love just that you're talking about just using these. New chops that yeah, you're exactly. covering within exactly. your hands. Um, I, th- there's a, a, some touring that I was doing where it wasn't the inner thing. It wasn't the big rooms. It was smaller rooms, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was uh, you know the the, the the monitoring was mm-hmm. different every time. And wedges, so, yep. so you really had to play to the room, right? And uh, and I was like, it was difficult mm-hmm. for a while, and then I fell in love with it. Yeah. Because then you're like, oh yeah, I remember what drums sound like. Exactly. You know, I remember <laughs> what the snare drum sounds like two inches from the edge of the rim, mm-hmm. or what this ride cymbal sounds like here, not there. Right. You know, and that's when you kind of like it opens your world as far as what exactly. you know you can do with this acoustic instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, um, totally, man. Well, one of the coolest things that Future Man ever said to me mm. we were playing some jazz festival together like I was with Charlie Hunter and he was with mm-hmm. Bella Fleck and then it was the first time I met him and it was cool and I told him that I got to study with Tony Williams and he said man that's one. he's one of the baddest drummers and he said man it's, and then I said yeah you're right he taught me so much and he said 
He said, that's kind of, I kind of went back and I started, he actually at the time, he, he, he's still using his box, but he was incorporating acoustic drums. Okay. So he had some toms and a couple of cymbals while he was playing. And he said, and I said, well, what made you start reincorporating acoustic stuff? He said, man, when you hit the right cymbal, there's so much information there. Yeah. And I just, that blew me away. I had to sit on that. And it's great because the timbre. Yeah, I mean the the overtone series that's invested in it, the 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 sustain. There's so much information in one hit of the symbol, and so the, to to your point, like playing doing those restaurant gigs where I had to play real quiet, it forces you to really embrace the beauty of the drum or the, or the cymbal and the sounds of those instruments and really take care to go. Man, there's there there are melody, there's melodies, there's pitch, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. there's stuff coming off of those drums that mm-hmm. hey, I like to bash as much as anybody. I was doing it last night with Hank and Gretchen Wilson. But <laughs> yeah. but something about when you have those quieter moments where you can really get a deep appreciation for yeah. the the depth of, of, of those instruments. Right. I also think that it's, it's encouraging as, as working drummers, we find ourselves in different rooms in different situations. Mm-hmm. If it's not an arena, sometimes right. it's in a, in a restaurant with a tile floor and a right. glass, mm-hmm. you're up against glass and you're like, Oh, this is right. going to be a nightmare. No, no, no. <laughs> Maybe it's not. Exactly. Maybe it's an opportunity to explore the instrument in a new way Absolutely, that you didn't man. before. And just kind of play to the room and figure mm-hmm. out, e- even if it's a pop gig, right. you know, it's not totally. this is, you know, there's different ways to do it. Totally. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Tell me about your experience with Tony. Dude, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the cool thing was, I, <clears throat> unfortunately, I couldn't do private lessons with him because I couldn't afford him. I think at the time he's charging 100 an hour and I was still in college. But he also offered these two-hour master classes on the weekends for $60 total. So it was like basically $30 an hour. I was like, man, I could do that. Yeah. So um, I should do that. Yeah, I should do that. Yes. <laughs> And um, at the time, I was living with a drummer friend of mine, and we're going to community college. And uh, we both went together. And I was just, it was, in, it was when he was living in the Bay Area. So we drove, <clears throat> it's like a 40-minute drive to get into San Francisco from where I was living. And um, I, as we were driving, I was getting nervous. I was thinking, man, there's going to be some bad cats in there. I'm just going to be get swallowed up, and there's going to be some beasts on drums. And I show up. And surprisingly enough, a lot of the guys had didn't have much experience. Huh. And I was the most experienced guy there. And it's not the same thing about my abilities. Just happened to be that way. Yeah. And um, so a lot of, so he kind of had to go back like the first weekend he was teaching everybody how to play traditional grip. And like I played drum corps shows playing traditional grip. So I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on it. Yeah. And so what, so what started to happen was he was noticing that I already had concepts down that a lot of the other guys in the room didn't. Yeah. So he almost, I almost became, he would kind of use me to come up and demonstrate examples. So he's the one studying with Tony. He kind of cracked the door open 
or blew the doors off really in terms of independence, like understanding four-way coordination and how to use all four limbs independently and interdependently. And um, he would have us do this exercise where we would just play a basic swing pattern. So basic jazz ride pattern, ding, 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 ding. Feather tapping quarter notes on the kick drum, hi-hat on beats two and four, as well as acrostic with the left hand on two and four. And he, he'd just have us play. Okay, play about medium forte. So I play medium forte. Mm-hmm. He'd point to one limb. I'd have to crescendo that one, rim, that one limb while keeping all the rest of them at the same volume. Oh, wow. And then he'd point again, I'd decrescendo. So he'd go, ride simple. And I'd have to bring the ride wow. pattern up, keeping everything else consistent. <clears throat> and then decrescendo, and then he'd point kick drum, same thing. And it, while I was doing it, I was like, whoa, this is what it's about. Because I was able to hear all the parts as one. And separately at the exact same time. Wow. And it blew me away. I was like, this is it. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this is what I've been looking for. And it's cool. And I, like I tell a lot of my, or people in general, not just my students, but it's kind of like being an orchestra conductor where yeah. you have violins, cellos, yeah. percussionists, trombonists. And, and as they're conducting the entire piece, they're cueing, you know, mm-hmm. the flute solo. And they're cueing the triangle hit. They're cueing the timpani mm-hmm. roll right. in the midst of keeping everything together. I was like, that's what... That's what independence is. That's what mm-hmm. that four record coordination is. So right, that blew, yeah. So that blew wide open for me. Yeah, and I was I was hooked. <laughs> well, and, and either people are thinking, oh, coordination. Okay, I'm going to play five over four with this, right. or and then people are like, no, I don't want to do that. I just right. like I want to I want to play this one. That's great, mm-hmm. love, man. That's amazing. Yeah, and it feeds in so many levels. Like I use it incessantly in the studio because I'm constantly checking in and making yes. sure is my groove balanced. Am I am, is my yeah. backbeat consistent? Is uh-huh. my kick drum consistent? Yes. You know, if I have to play, if it's too quiet, if I hear my too much kick, okay, I have to back that up, but still have everything be the same volume. And, and even especially like, you know, as you know, being in the, in the studio, like cymbals aren't the most liked instrument of the drum set. Yeah, right. So right. it's like learning how to okay to keep that backbeat and kick drum strong, but lay off the hi hat so much so it's not yes. so uh, intrusive. And obnoxious, so or even crash cymbals as well. Uh-huh. So learning how to play a fill and then ending it in such a way where the crash is not, you know, rude and, and in the way, mm-hmm. but the drums still and the drums are still mm-hmm. present in that mm-hmm. fill. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, that, that still translates back. That takes me back to my days with Tony of independence, mm-hmm. really checking in, hearing everything mm-hmm. separate and together at the same time. So yeah, uh, that's one thing that I've I've. One of a thousand things I've taken away from this podcast experience <laughs> was uh, understanding balancing. Yes, uh, balancing yourself mm-hmm. and not relying. And and a lot of the stuff that m- my experience in the last f- uh, number of years in, in Nashville has been a very controlled, you know, in ear type situation where you lose some of that mm-hmm. connectivity with the drum set. Yeah, and learning how to balance yourself. And uh, a great talk I had with Travis McNabb talking about I love that you know, dude. He's just, one of my man crushes too. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like you have to uh, balance yourself. Yes, if the hi hat's too loud, you just don't turn down the knob. You right. turn yourself down. exactly self mixing exactly right. And yeah. and I was I was laying into the hi hat way too much, mm-hmm. and uh, that 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 was like that's great. What an eye opening experience, and mm-hmm. so. Having that connection on a dynamic level, again, kind of going back to that, yeah, is so important. Absolutely, so great. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. So, how many times did you end up uh, working with Tony? Or unfortunately, I only did it with a month. I did it for a month. I did it four times. Okay. So I had four yeah, meetings. Yeah. And yeah. It was so cool, and it was 
<clears throat> it was interesting because it was at the time he's doing a lot of touring with other DW artists. Mm-hmm. And so there was like some Saturdays he'd come in, he'd just do like a 30, 40 minute drum solo, just kick, snare, hi hat, ride. And we just watched him. I mean, I was just, I was drooling the whole time. Yeah. Just, oh my gosh, it was incredible. And it was cool, like, to kind of go back to what I was saying before, we had a cool connection because <clears throat> he was going back into Rudiments because he's like, it was kind of cool to see Tony Williams be humbled. He's like, man, I'm going out with these cats. I got to get my chops together. Mm-hmm. So he started re, you know, reassessing his rudiments, and he would play a rudiment, and he said, yeah, check this out. And I was like, oh, that's a cheese de cheddar. He's like, cheese de cheddar? What's that? And so we kind of laughed. Like, I had this drum corps terminology of stuff he was playing, and so that was another kind of a bonding moment yeah. with him. It's like he, I, Even though he didn't really say it, I kind of felt like he, he's kind of telling me in a in a kind of nonverbal way, like, okay, you, you get it. You're on the right track. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. that was great. Yeah. But unfortunately, I couldn't afford to do it longer than a month. And, yeah. But man. You know, we, we talked uh, earlier about just drums, the way they're tuned, and, and sometimes they just don't always sound that great, but yeah. the person knows how to get that sound to sound the way they want it to on tape right. when they're in the studio. Mm-hmm. That being said, I can never get over sometimes the way Tony tuned his drums. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Right? I know it's funny. Like, you listen to the 60s stuff, like 64, My Funny Valentine Live concert, which is probably my, that and Seven Steps to Heaven are probably my two oh, yeah. favorite records that he's played on. But then when he started playing more rock, like he started Emergency in the late 60s, and then right. the drums kept getting incessantly bigger and bigger. And then he yeah. Was, yeah, so I think. <laughs> if I can say this in a respectful, loving way, oh, no. that I think his ego kind of got in the way, and 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 uh, he wanted to make sure that he, he was an advocate for the drums, and and uh, you know talking mm-hmm. to guys like Carl Allen and other people that spent a lot of time with him, like <clears throat> he was very, he was all about making sure the drummers get their due, if if not equally, like they should be rewarded even more so than the rest of the band because of their responsibility, because like really every drummer is the leader of the band. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when I play with Hank Jr., my job is to make Hank look good and sound good and make him feel comfortable so he can have the best performance. But really, I have to lead the band mm-hmm. in order to do that job. So mm-hmm. that's, again, it's, they didn't come to see me. Right, but I'm, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it's my job. So t- Tony may have taken that to an extreme level in some people's mm-hmm. opinions. So yeah. I think that's why the drums yeah. got louder and bigger and more forefront. So yeah. he, he really was a hardcore rock drummer and just like, I feel like yeah. that's, that was his, he wanted to be that yeah. <laughs> even in, even in a jazz quintet setting, like it was all about the drum. The drums are the most important thing in this right now. <laughs> and the beautiful thing about Tony is there's genres of Tony yes. that you can follow throughout exactly. the decades. Mm-hmm. And just as a side note, you know, we just lost Alan Holdsworth. That's you know, right. Who yeah, was yeah, yeah. A big part of that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, because he was sure Tony was yeah. right. Tony probably was a huge part of him. Oh, definitely getting launched in that career. And I'm such a huge Alan Holdsworth fan. So it's such great. a such a loss. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about uh, Hank, but I want to I want to ask you about <laughs> um, working with Charlie Hunter. Um, we had Carter McLean on. A yes, I love Carter. So, Mr. Lion uh, King. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just kind of just made me think, it's like, well, what was that experience like? Because I know he does more duo things for those who are kind of keeping up with the episodes uh, mm-hmm. kind of as a supplement yeah. to what Carter was talking about. What was your experience like? Uh, Charlie is, he's probably one of the most brilliant people I know. He's freakishly intelligent and his brains probably probably works <laughs> harder than it should. He's so he's such a fascinating character. I mean for a guy who doesn't even have a high school degree, he's literally one of the smartest people I know. <clears throat> um 
he was great for me because he's he pays such a detail to the groove like he was so anal about the pocket and the groove and the connection with him and the drummer i mean he would say it all the time you know he's he's playing this instrument it's basically it's not even about two instruments in one it's a whole nother instrument that's almost requires three jobs because he's He's playing, he has his part guitar, part bass he's doing together. So he's playing bass lines, mm-hmm. which are an accompaniment to him playing chords yes. and a melody. And, yeah. then, and then he improvises on it. And yeah. so he weighs heavily because his job is so ridiculous. And, you know, he's put out solo records. He can He's a whole band within himself. <clears throat> but he puts such a weight on the drummers because he knows he, he needs drummers to lean on because he got such an arduous task. I mean, the dude, <laughs> he's such a freak. So he knows, like, if any... Because he's doing some something so difficult, if he if he stumbles or if he if it's not happening, if he tries to go for something he can't get to. At least he has the drums to, to rely on. Sure, sure. And so that's why he's he's such a stickler. Thankfully, I when I joined the band, he was calmed down. He would tell me all the time, "Man, I was so much harder on drums. You should be glad." Like he was like to Jay Lane and Scott Amendola, he was just a beast. He was just oh. <laughs> hardcore, just militant on those guys about keeping the groove. But with me, he was he was good. Yeah. He, he didn't let up on me per se, but he yeah. was he was he was nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and really, I credit him because playing with someone like him, like for one thing, he's watching him play is, is fascinating. And he does this thing where he likes to face the drummer. He, so even though he was facing, if he's facing directly to the audience, he'd have the drummer face sideways. Yeah, there's a so, video. There's a video of you working with him uh, in the duo kind of. Yeah, exactly. was it always duo with him? No, well, the first band I joined was actually a quintet, which was man, that was my favorite. That might be my favorite band, just in terms of the the compositions, because you had you had harmonica, trombone, and saxophone with the three voices, and just a unique blend. Of, man, the way he wrote his music was so killing. So he didn't bring in a bass player. <clears throat> he was still doing that. Oh, he's still doing it. He's yeah. never stopped being the bass player okay. and guitar player. And um, so that was the fun experience. That was the first band. And, and the album covered, you know, had to play a shuffle, had to play a songo groove, had to play a hip-hop groove. Had to, I mean, there's so much ground I had to cover. And I was happy to do it. But it was, man, it's, he was such a stickler for the groove and the tempo and the vibe. And, um, yeah, and, and then later on evolved. The band slowly got smaller and smaller. So then evolved to a trio um, before I left. And then the video probably saw me playing... Um, duo about five years ago after i moved to nashville because okay. basically before <clears throat> i was playing with him up until i moved to nashville and the last gig i did with him was in las vegas i played a gig with him on a friday i flew back to new jersey on a saturday packed up my truck and on sunday i drove from jersey to to, <laughs> to tennessee yeah so that was kind of my swan song with him like basically closing the door on that gig was was the was the, kind of the the beginning of my journey in nashville yeah and um but the cool thing he's the one that got me he literally bought me the New Orleans jazz drumming and second New Orleans jazz and second line drumming book, yeah. which features Herlin Riley and Johnny yeah. Vodakovich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That again, another critical moment in my development. He's like, man, check this out because <clears throat> he knew that that's what I needed. And 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 uh, some about New Orleans drummers, man, their beat yeah. and their vibe is so great. Because again, as I was developing my swing and my groove it was still kind of kind of stiff it was still kind of narrow because of all my marching band and drum corps experience it was all about accuracy and perfection being right on the beat and so he gave me that and it really helped me to fatten my beat i remember uh years ago seeing um oh my gosh idris muhammad play mm-hmm. and he was playing in the straight ahead mm-hmm. groove group with uh, joe lovano greg osby 
and uh, Jason Moran. But his swing, his beat was so fat. His quarter note, it was just so weighted and sturdy and just mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. indestructible. I was like, dude, I want to sound like that. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. studying, and you know, he grew up in New Orleans, so studying Second yeah. Line and Street Beats and Dixieland, that helped to fatten my beat. So it was great that he gave me that book, and I just soaked it up and getting my second line chops together and it really helped me so when i play a, whatever it is a rock beat funk beat it's so much fatter mm-hmm. because i spent the time widening it with that that greasy swampiness that all those nashville guys and uh, new orleans guys have yeah right right so that's another great thing that that charlie did for me that's awesome um, yeah <laughs> Why Nashville? What what was the motivation for? So you were you were you were in Oakland. You moved to New Jersey. You were working in New Jersey, uh-huh. and then and then then Nashville. Well, as a it was fascinating because doors were starting to close. Obviously, Charlie told us he was getting a new band. Um, I tried a bunch of different ways to stay in New York. Again, my connection with Carter McLean was like, I'll try to do Broadway. So I actually sat in on a few shows, mm-hmm. sat on Beauty and the Beast, Spam a Lot, and Lion King. Okay. I was just trying to get on the sub list yeah. to get some work, and, and then the doors just wouldn't open. And um, it's kind of funny, again, my connection with Charlie, and as I'm sure every drummer's talked about the peaks and valleys of the career. Yeah, no, well, oh, was there something about some of those musicals that you. Was there anything about that that maybe you can pinpoint of why you didn't get? I mean, there's so many reasons why you there's don't so get a call. Yeah, uh, were you able to pinpoint maybe a reason why or something or or not? I, I think part of it maybe is being unknown in that circle. Okay. I was relatively new, and yeah. thankfully I had some connections to be even be able to sit in the pit and watch it, watch a book, yeah, go by. You know, I'm th- grateful for those people that gave me the opportunity, including Carter, but. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You know, Carter wasn't going to give out that gig. I don't, I don't even know if it, all the years he's been there if he's even subbed. <laughs> he might be subbed from time to time. But, I mean, there were a lot of drummers that were there before me. So I'm sure that, one, they already had their list. Because I know with particular with Lion King, Tommy Igu yeah, wrote yeah. that book. And right. then Carter was kind of his protege. Yeah. And so I'm sure Tommy already had a list before I even showed up. I might have been 27th in his sure, mind. Sure, sure, So sure. if you don't have to get past number five, why would you call number 27? Right. So right. I think that was part of it is being unknown. Yeah, and I'm just yeah. not making enough impact to be on their radar. Yeah, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and um, but it's amazing because as doors were closing, you know, I was considering teaching. I was all kinds of things were going through my mind. But I was starting to get calls from Nashville. The very first call I got was actually from Charlie Peacock. I have no idea how he got my number, and he literally called me when I was on the road with Charlie. And he's like, "Hey man, I was hoping you do this gig." And I was like, uh, "I can't." I had a gig with Charlie yeah. at the time. Yeah. It's like, man, I love to. And I, I literally asked him, I said, how did you even get my number? He's like, well, right. I've heard about you. I've heard you play. And I was like, it freaked me out because I knew who Charlie Peacock was. I'm like, dude, you've worked with CC Winans and Switchfoot and, you know, DC Talk. Like, why are you calling me? <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that kind of led a little spark. And then there was also, at the church I was playing at in New Jersey, the music director was best friends with Toby Mac's musical director. And at the time, his drummer was thinking about leaving, Brian Kelly. And um, so the music director at my church was really pushing hard for me to get that gig. And so mm-hmm. I befriended um, Toby Mac's MD. And okay. then it worked out where I had a gig in New York and they had a gig in Jersey. And they were coming to New York City to hang out at a sushi bar. And so after my gig, I booked it over to meet Toby. And I was like, hey, Toby, I'd love to meet you, bro. And so I'm thinking about moving to Nashville. He's like, that's cool, man. He said, well, I talked to my drummer today and he just decided to stay. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> dang it, I could have had a gig. So the cool thing was that as doors were closing in, in the East Coast, they were kind of opening 
in Nashville. And then, so I already knew I kind of wanted to go, but getting my wife on board was a different story. I know. Mm. I mean, things were kind of rough. I mean, we never saw each other. It was tough to pay the bills. It was crazy. Yeah. We're having kids. We had three kids at the time. So what kind of what put it over the top was um, my dad, again, be from Arkansas. We'd have these reunions in Little Rock. And so we drove through Tennessee and actually my oldest brother was living here at the time down in Shelbyville, Belboco. And so we went to his house and then drove from, from here to um, Arkansas and then we drove back. And so as we're driving back and forth through Tennessee, my wife and I kind of fell in love with it. So it was yeah. like, well, yeah. well, I'm getting calls from here. We have family here already. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> we're kind of, kind of getting burned out on the East coast thing. So we, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of what did it. So in 2006, we, okay. we made the move. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, how did the Hank Jr. gig come about? <laughs> that was pretty cool. So there's um, an artist named Jim ha- Jimmy Hall who's in this uh, Nashville who's well-known as Wet Willie. He had some hits in the 70s and 80s yeah. and tons of bands. Phenomenal. I mean, he's tours with everybody. Jeff Beck, the Allman Brothers. I mean, Government Mule, Warren Haynes. I mean, he's mm-hmm. one of those perennial, just phenomenal rock, blues, soul singers. Incredible. And he's almost 70. He has the youthfulness of a 22 year old. It's, it's wow. insane. Totally insane. So wow. I was, I've been working with him off and on for a couple of years. So this is back in 2014 and um, we're doing one of the Delbert McClinton crews that we do annually in January. And we're at a port city and his wife walks up to me and says, Hey, did you know that Hank Jr.'s drummer's leaving? And I said, I had no idea. <laughs> she said, you should try and get that gig. I was like, Thanks. Thanks, Karen. I appreciate that. So the next day I talked to her husband, Jimmy Hall. And I say, hey, Jimmy, your wife told me that uh, Hank's drummer's leaving, man. I'm putting my name in. I love to audition. Let me know. Yeah. And so he gave me some details and said, man, yeah, I'll keep you posted. And <clears throat> eventually the audition came. He sent me the material. I studied up. And um, well, the cool thing was started backtrack. After, once I got off the boat, so that was like in the middle of the week in January. And then it's and then a few days later, when we got off the boat, and I was driving back from Florida, because that's where they were the boat docks, and sure. back to Nashville. Yeah. And um, I found out that Nick Buta had to gig. Oh, okay. I was, so I decided to call Nick. I said, hey, man, I didn't know you had to hang junior gig. He's like, yeah. And so I called him, and wow, it was going to rain. Um, I didn't know he had that. <laughs> yeah, he had to yeah. gig for about three or four years. Yeah, no idea either. Hank Jr.? Know. Hank Jr. He was a jun- He's a drummer for me. Yeah. Yep. So I talked to him and kind of got a feel for the gig. Um, I auditioned. I got the gig. And then I met with him again the day before rehearsals just to, you know, we went and had some drinks and just talked about the gig and mm-hmm. kind of want to be prepared. Like, what what's the band like? What's Hank like? What his tendencies? What to be prepared for? Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's so funny. Then I, <laughs> the next day I go on auditions. We had three days of auditions. I mean, sorry, into rehearsals. And... Um, I learned all the material, and then I would just kind of learn a handful of songs at rehearsal. And then at the end of the songs, everybody said, yeah, it sounds pretty good, but, you know, it might be different when Hank's here. <laughs> right, because the rehearsals, a lot of times people don't know this. When you, A lot of times when you rehearse, especially in Nashville, I don't know how it is, other places, but mm-hmm. the, the artists won't even be there. Yeah, I'm sure in L.A. is a lot like that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, 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 so yeah. you'll, you know, it's like someone might give you a little bit of a guide vocal, but right. it's, it's weird, you know. Exactly, yeah, so those three rehearsals, the, the manager will say, well, Hank might show up, he might come in the afternoon, never showed up. So Jimmy Hall sang all of his vocals, which is great because I love Jimmy Hall's voice and... and you know? Yeah, so he knows the songs better than anybody because he's been in the band what almost twenty five years. So, so I felt pretty good about it. It was fun, and then uh, 
<laughs> I didn't actually meet him. So we did. It was like Tuesday. It was like Thursday, Friday. Wait, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday were rehearsals. We had Friday off, and then midnight of Friday was bus call. So I still haven't met Hank. Haven't talked to him. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, does he even know I have the gig? Right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go. The first show was in Orlando, and that day we're checking the hotel, hanging out, and. uh Still no Hank. And they're like, oh, Hank will show up. He usually shows up an hour before the show. I'm like, an hour before the show? I'm like, bro. I'm like, again, does he know that I'm the guy? I'm yeah, the exactly. <laughs> and so, He'll be okay with this. Exactly. So yeah. lo and behold, usually what happens is he flies in and then uh, he takes over the, the band bus. And, and that's kind of his dressing room before the show. Yeah. Where he kind of decompresses and changes. Sure. So I walk on the bus and I meet him and his best friend and his wife. Yeah. And I uh, walk in, and it's so funny. He's a big, towering figure, just just a beast of a man, and and got this big, bellowy, deep voice. And he goes, he, Jimmy says, "Hey, here's your new drummer, Derek Phillips." <laughs> and then you know, Hank looks at me, and he goes, "Hmm, so you're the guy, right?" He's like, "Yep, that's the guy." So you're the you're the one who's gonna gonna play the drums. And I said, "Yep, that's that's my job. I'm here here for you, Hank." Yeah. And he says, "Well, uh." Just well, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pitching them, so make sure you're catching them. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and so my first thought was, does he know what that reference could be taken uh. as? But, <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then also it just reminded me it was like, okay, because they said you know he likes to keep it interesting on stage, and so I, yeah. I'd say that's my job, that's what I'm here for. So so he yeah he likes to he likes to throw some curveballs every now and then. So you know. So uh, yeah, he doesn't like to stick to the script, which is which keeps the show. So fun. is it always? I mean, is there ever a set list or? That first year it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> so okay. my first year, as I'm literally still learning the material, is like curveballs left and right, and so usually there was a, there was a there's a shape to the show. Like at the time when I first got in the band, like I didn't know what the first few songs were going to be. And then he'd pick up his guitar and he'd start playing licks and then we'd just have to figure out what it was. But like the landmarks were when he went to Kalijah. Okay, Kalijah was like a landmark song. We, when he was ready to go to Kalijah, that's when he plays the fiddle. And after he does that, then he goes to the piano and does mm-hmm. some piano stuff. So mm-hmm. that was, again, that's, and then he does an acoustic set right after that. Mm-hmm. And then the Country Boy Can't Survive is his last acoustic song. Mm-hmm. Then he starts the guitar parts of Born a Boogie and that's our cue to get back on stage yeah. and then we end with Family Tradition so that's pretty much so he's going to uh, do the core yeah so that was yeah, the script yeah. but I mean again there's so much wiggle room in there yeah. it's like okay I know Kalijah Country Boy Born a Boogie and Family Tradition like those were the con- only consistent things from night to night and I was like what is going on and like that first year I, I kid you not like every show there's at least one song that I play on stage I never played before Man. and sometimes I just literally just have to fall in and just figure out I think this is how the beat goes and just play yeah yeah. or and then, and then it then it kind of progressed to having the first few songs set and then, but still a lot of wiggle room. If he picks up the guitar, it's like it's a wild card. He can start, yeah. you know, he right. can start playing a ZZ Top song or a Marshall Tucker song or yeah. Aerosmith song. And it's just, you just have to go and fall yeah. in. And so. Um, Do you think your experience in the past? Exactly. I tell people all the time, man, because it, like, man, that'd be nerve wracking. Because most of the guys in town, like, they play to click loops, yeah. everything's set in motion. Even, yeah. you know, how long the artist takes a sip of water is time. Like, it's linked <laughs> with a video. Like, it's everything true. is completely mapped it's, out down to true. a science. That's true. And so, 
I'm like, man, how do you do by that? The way. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not always water, exactly. If it's in a red cup, definitely not water. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they're like, how do you do that? I was like, well, you know, thankfully my jazz experience yeah. comes in handy. I yeah. mean, <clears throat> because you just have to know that big ears. Man. Yeah, just have big ears and just be spontaneous and spontaneate, have some spontaneity and mm-hmm. work on the fly and just go with the flow. Because it can be a little nerve wracking if you let it. Like it would be nice to have some kind of. Now it's kind of settling. We do have more of a set list. Like the first, right now, the first seven songs are kind of scripted. But again, there's still wiggle room. And sometimes what he does nowadays is on the way to the show <laughs> or like 30 minutes before the show, he'll, he'll change up the second song. He's like, you know, I think I want to do uh, I'm for Love or tonight I'm, I'm thinking about doing Women I Never Had. And so we have to pull out our phones and listen to the song five times and know the arrangement and get, yeah. and sometimes there's a live arrangement that I, I don't know and I have to confer with the rest of the band because I might hear the studio version but then they'll say well we do a little differently we do we actually modulate after the second chorus not uh-huh. the uh-huh. I'm like okay I gotta keep that in mind yeah, yeah. so Never a dull moment. Are Never you starting songs or is he starting? It, it's it's probably 50-50. It, generally, yeah. if he has a guitar in his hand, he's starting it. Yeah. If he does not, I start it. That's and are you using any t- type of thing to keep track of time or, or just he's pretty good with He's pretty good with knowing you know the the pace of the show we used mm-hmm. to do 75 to 90 minute show and he's okay. basically just depends on... I, I mean tempo. Oh, you're talking about tempo, sorry. Yeah, tempo, yeah. I just kind of have okay. a... I sometimes I used to reference a, cl- a click and not have it in my ear, but just like have my phone there and just see it and then give a, give myself right, a count right, basically. Right, right. But now I just kind of go by memory. The first time uh, we met was uh, we had a roundtable uh, mm-hmm. discussion that Keo Stroud helped put together yep. called the uh, Black Drummers of Nashville Roundtable. Yep. So sounds like a TV, yeah. Here. We should start a TV show off of that now. (laughs) (laughs) Could be, could be. And and so you know there were there were there were five drummers all talking with me and mm-hmm. sharing bits and pieces and so certainly not enough time to discuss everything right and so um, but I want to I want to address that just kind of and and because the gig that you have yeah. is this iconic southern rocker country icon yep. guy that has a black drummer right so. And, and everybody, just about everybody on that panel had a country gig of some sort. And, and so, uh, tell me about that experience. Like, and, and you did share something before, but I mean, has there been anything that, that you can talk about that maybe is unique to you hmm. in your situation? Well, the cool thing is that even though what Hank is known for, I mean, people are aware of his political leanings and mm-hmm. certain sound bites he said, but... <clears throat> He may not see eye to eye politically or about certain issues, but he generally likes people. And, and I never felt that, you know, he didn't hire me, one, as a gimmick or, or two, that, you know, he never not liked me. Like, he, like it's, he, he really appreciates who I am as a person. Like, I get that feeling. Like, there's, there's one time when uh, we played this festival and, like, Montgomery Gentry there and mm-hmm. Kelly Pickler's there. And then mm-hmm. after the show... Uh, Kelly Pickler was hanging out on the bus and they're just chopping it up. 
And um, so he's actually on the band bus again. Normally he's already on the plane, but he decided to hang out because Kelly looking. Pickler is there. Yeah, because Kelly Pickler's there. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean, they've gone hunting and fishing with Kid Rock a bunch, so they they go way back. Yeah. So she's so country and it's awesome. But yeah, so I remember we kind of avoided being on the bus just so they can hang out. Sure. And then finally we started to trickle in on the bus, and I was just, he's hanging out in the front lounge with her and. I, I was going to make a beeline straight to the back lounge with the rest of the band. And as I was walking, like trying to not make eye contact, just like not getting away, he stands up and he just bear hugs me. <laughs> and I thought, man, either he relaxed me or I'm about to die in about eight seconds. And um, he just said, I sure like the way you play those drums tonight. You, man, you, I was pitching and you were catching. And I nice. thought, man, thanks, Hank. I appreciate that. And so that, like, that was Jen. Like, he didn't have to do that. And yeah, and so I yeah. thought like wow he really appreciates yeah what I am and I and I this is kind of a I'm curious how much this plays into I was talking to someone else about this but one of his closest friends was Derek Thomas um, the NFL football player who played for Kansas City Chiefs they were tight I mean thick as thieves they went hunting and fishing together mm. he's in his music videos and um and he died prematurely mm. but um <clears throat> I'm curious I I'm, I'll be fascinated to see like. Cause he'll say my name on stage sometimes, mm-hmm. like when we, whenever we start walk this way, he's like, he'll say, "What do you think about that, Derek?" And then I, that's my cue to start the groove. And um, I'm I'm curious to see like with him saying Derek, that brings a certain level of comfort to him, mm-hmm. reminding him of his be- well best friend. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I know, so I feel like that might deepen the appreciation that he has yeah, for me yeah. because I'm kind of a. A reminder of, mm-hmm. of one of his old friends, and and um, yeah, I think and I think it's cool that you know again, what well, regardless of his political leanings or viewpoints on things, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he generally likes all different kinds of people, and yeah. um, and I, I never felt threatened and and or that I'm on the wrong gig, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> Even though yeah. I, I know I play to a sea of Confederate flags or or sea of you know, of people who kind of look the same, have very similar skin hue that differs from mine. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, it's almost, I, I, I get the sense that. But your again, boss is, is out there in front. He's, he's yeah. Yeah. You guys I mean, are, you guys are working together. Exactly. I kind of feel yeah. like Hank has one of the most progressive bands out there because of the fact that he has a black drummer and a female bass player, yeah. you know, and, and we all have our even just our backgrounds are all come from different backgrounds. You know, there's some people in the band that voted for Barack Obama. There's some, mm-hmm. you know, some people that grew up in the city. Some people grew up in rural areas and have a wide range of yeah, experiences. Yeah. And so, um, and even age, I mean, Michelle, the bass player and I are, are younger, but there's some older cats in the band. And so even that, but um, yeah, I don't feel like that he's, you know, I feel I'm grateful because being in for so many levels that that I feel like people his audience get to see me up there and maybe I might be the only black person that they ever come into contact with to some degree. So right. the fact that oh that's Hank's I'm referred to as Hank's drummer that gives them some at least it gives them a, a broadens their reference. Mm-hmm. So whatever viewpoint they have of seeing people of different color that that my part and I play a part in how they perceive mm-hmm. an African-American man or African-American person or mm-hmm. a person who's not Caucasian. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I, you know, I take great, great pride in that and I appreciate that. So, and if Hank is like their hero, right. Then they're like, well, wait a minute. This is part of his world. It can be a part of my world. Exactly. Too. Yeah, exactly. Wow. 
yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I think it's cool. I think it's, and he says it from the stage. Even, I mean, this is not, this is all public information. But it's yeah. like, I got black friends, white friends. I got all kinds of friends. So, yeah. so it's like the fact that he's preaching, almost kind of preaching that, proselytizing that. It's like, yeah. then hopefully people come away going, they, maybe it can be a, a way for them to check themselves. Like, man, I don't have any. I don't have any black friends or yeah. I never I never talked to a person of a different color or, or different yeah. gender or different sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it expands them in some way where they go, maybe I can. Maybe there's there's yeah. a possibility for growth yeah. for me. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, especially in an age of, of polarization. Right. Right. You know, totally. It's all about division. I mean, it's such focus on how we're different rather than how we're the same. And yeah, yeah. so frustrating. So yeah, frustrating. For sure. So, for yeah. sure. And there's a lot of stuff that, that you've shared today that, that I think is going to help people, man. Especially, I mean, there's a couple books you talked about that I'm, I've thought about and I've seen them. And I just, yeah. I have not, it's just been a long time since I've had the time. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to make, I'm trying to carve those, that time out to then visit those books that I've seen right. for years. Right. And uh, and the whole Tony Williams thing, <laughs> bringing the volume of the different limbs up. And yeah, down. man, that, I'm I'm ready to do that. It's like, so cool, man. <laughs> you you gotta go, man. You got I gotta hit the shed right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know I'm good. The good thing I have a gig. I can get. I got. I need an outlet too, man. Get an outlet too. Um, <laughs> but Derek, but Derek, man, thank you for doing this. Oh, I man. appreciate coming back up here again. Absolutely, man. Yeah, well, dude. I love what you do. I'm a fan of what you do. I listen to you. a man at Eddie Bear's podcast and Herman yeah, Matthews and I'm still I'm still working my way through Rob and then obviously I'm fans of some of my friends Rob Mitchell and the, the Coxsmiths and yeah, man it's really cool it's, it's great to have an outlet like this with you and, and the other guys it's been a it's been such a great experience for me and and, yeah. and I've learned so much every time and I just I go away just just I'm, I'm excited and yeah. just my spirit's lifted every time I can get a chance to L- talk likewise. to somebody and, 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 and I think Zach brings in this like I, I didn't know I'm sorry who, uh, oh, Car- wait, Carter McLean Carter McLean, yeah. Carter McLean. Um, I didn't know anything about him yeah you know I was like wow this guy's all over the place yeah he's ridiculous yeah, yeah. he's ridiculous yeah but man thank you so much man I appreciate pleasure. you yeah. absolutely man thanks for having me anytime sure, anytime So there you go. There was my conversation with Derek Phillips. He and I briefly met at the Black Drummers of uh, Nashville roundtable that we had a few months ago. And uh, it just seemed like uh, the next logical step to get him to come over and continue uh, his story and sharing more information with you. And I thank Derek for doing that. It was good to get to know him a little bit better. Uh, Once again, this Friday, May 19th, we will be launching the Patreon page, and you as the listener can participate. Uh, For those getting involved in the first six weeks of our Patreon launch, you will be entered into a raffle to win many uh, great things provided by Innovative Percussion. But more information about Patreon and all the ways you can participate and all the free things you can get, uh, we will be sharing that in the coming weeks and months. So stay tuned for that. Um, we also have a new logo. And uh, my thanks to uh, Christina, which Christina Albetta, which is Zach Albetta, my co-host. His wife helped design that. And uh, my thanks to Mike Jackson for him getting our all our social media updated with the new logo. We're excited about uh, the new shirts and all these other things that we're going to be able to use with the new logo. So, 
Thanks to Mike Jackson. Thanks to Zach Albetta. Thanks to Christina. Thanks to you. Thanks for the listener. Thanks for all the years of support, the two and a half years that we've done this and over 116 episodes. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate it so much. And uh, I hope to see you around. Thanks. Bye-bye.